Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about the action-adventure thriller, Michael Bay's blockbuster, The Rock. Now, the plot of this film, a mild-mannered FBI chemist and a former SAS captain, now ex-con, are tasked with stopping a group of rogue U.S. Marines who have seized Alcatraz Island, taken hostages, and threatened to launch rockets filled with nerve gas over San Francisco unless they are paid $100 million. want to start by saying, holy shit, I'm super, super pumped to be doing this movie. We've done a lot of great ones that are my personal favorites, but... Man, this one's been this one's been on the calendar for a while. I, I'm so excited to do this one. Well, of all the replay value movies, this is probably the film that we've watched together the most. This marks the second collaboration of director Michael Bay and producers Don Simpson and Jerry Brockheimer. They first worked on Bad Boys, which is another replay value favorite of mine we will no doubt get to in future seasons. This is a classic 90s action movie of the highest order, and it is a pleasure to be talking about it. It's so good that it, when I forget that Michael Bay does it, I'm always surprised when I relearn that it's a Michael Bay film because it kind of stands apart from his other ones in the sense that, yeah, you know, it's a 90s action movie, but there's, there's another level of quality to it that kind of makes you look past the cliche 90s the improbability of a nineties action film to, to, to appreciate the goodness of the film. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And I think it represents a two different phases. Michael Bay's had in his career as a director or the earlier films are viewed at with a little bit of a higher quality, even the first bad boys film. True. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, uh, this film. And then it seemed like Armageddon was the last film or kind of when that transition started where he just went a little too far the other way with blockbuster fanfare focused more on the set pieces and the stunts and the action than actually telling a good story with uh, fleshed out characters. You know, Michael Bay got a start in advertising TV commercials. He spent six years in that before he did his first film. And mm. in, a lot, in a lot of ways, those on-set experiences uh, really made him quite a seasoned you know, director for such a young guy. Uh, he had a lot of filmmaking experiences on set. At one point, uh, this is when he knew he wanted to direct, he was working at Lucasfilm, and he was doing the credits for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And oh, that's said, awesome. Uh, another episode we covered uh, earlier this season. It's kind of crazy how small the world really is, uh, especially in cinema, the cinema industry. But he had said when he was putting the credits together, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg, this movie's going to suck. It's not going to be any good. <laughs> and, then, and then he went and saw it at the Grauman Chinese Theater, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard here in L.A. And he's like, oh, I have to do this. I have to be a director. So he paid his dues. And in his earlier films, you can really see he's a master craftsman with a lot of different shots that he that he does. And there's a handful of them in here that I absolutely love that we'll get to later. Yeah, and then he did kind of go full over the edge with like the '90s explosion porn, you know, action films. It probably peaked, I'd say, with the the Transformers movies there. Uh, but he he's had quite a few of them. But well, from a success standpoint, but from a quality, the Transformers movies are complete shit. It's like Fast and Furious to me. It's just such a sellout art form of making movies that it's I don't even know if you call it an art form, but it's just really um, not the type of films I like to watch. And it's um, 
Unfortunate that Bays went uh, that in that direction uh, in a later part of his career. Yeah, I was not talking about the quality of those films, more about how action-packed they were and, and how much that was the focus, less about the plot. Producers Don Simpson, Jerry Bronkheimer, they had done Flashdance, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop. They had had worldwide grosses of over $3 billion in their movies up to this point. So these guys were a powerhouse duo of, of uh, Hollywood film producers. And unfortunately, had the untimely passing of Don Simpson about halfway through the production of this film. And The Rock is dedicated in lovering memory to Don Simpson. And to talk about the screenwriters of the film, there were a few big names that were attached to it at one time. It got a lot of reworkings done throughout its life and uh, before it became the final draft. But it's kind of famous in the sense that a lot of writers that worked on it did not get credit for it. I'll just fire off a few. Uh, Jonathan Hensley, who you may not recognize right off the bat, but he did um, such big films as Jumanji, Armageddon, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Mm -hmm. He worked closely with Michael Bay on the script, yet does not have a screenwriting credit. Uh, A couple other names, Aaron Sorkin and Quentin Tarantino also Oscar-winning screenwriters. Tarantino has won two Oscars for writing screenplays, and Sorkin, of course, is an industry-renowned writer. He's won a Tony's, Emmys, and Oscars as a writer. So it's a little surprising that they did not get their due. So I dug into it a little bit, and this was apparently kind of a big deal with the Writers Guild of America in the sense they kind of have a rule that, uh, what is it, you have to work on at least 50% of the script to get a credit. So uh, as many names that were put their time into it, they they did not, not a lot of them got credit for it. That's happened with writing, that's happened with directing. This has went back with these guilds and some of these stipulations and disputes they've had before, and that is like a, a universal cardinal rule in the industry. You have to have 50% of the work to get a credit. Uh, this uh, most recently happened from a director's standpoint with the Justice League film. Even though Zack Snyder gets credit for directing the film, Everyone knows Josh Whedon is the one who did reshoots and, and edited the film and delivered the finished product. So it has a lot to that. That 50% rule uh, has been the grounds for a lot of arguments uh, in the past and no doubt will be in the future. Michael Bay himself kind of fought with uh, the Writers Guild of America to get specifically Jonathan Hensley uh, credit because he said he worked closely on the movie with him, like side by side essentially. But alas, that uh, did not work out. Yeah, and Bay isn't afraid to uh, go to war. He wasn't back then. He also had some tensions with Disney. He had several meetings. Uh, you know, Buena Vista is the distributor, uh, which is uh, an, an affiliate or arm of Disney. Uh, Buena Vista is the name of a street that actually runs outside Disney Studios, not far from my house. So, uh, well, that, that they get the company for all of the quote unquote Disney films. Um, so, if you look on you know box office records and you see all the Avengers movies and all the Marvel movies, the distributor is Buena Vista. So that's, that is the arm of the Disney Mm -hmm. distribution distribution chain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But Disney uh, had a lot of issues with Michael Bay and they called him into a meeting. Sean Connery, long story short, this ended up uh, culminating with a meeting between Michael Bay and Disney. Sean Connery came along for the meeting and, Stood up for Michael Bay. You know, at this point, Connery had a lot of clout, and we'll talk about some of the, his demands later. <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, when you get to this point in your career, uh, you're Sean Connery, you're a living legend, uh, you, you get what you want. And, and, you know, he basically told Disney, uh, uh, long story short, to fuck off, and uh, Michael Bay was doing a great job and to leave him alone. Clearly, the, the work speaks for itself. He did, he did do a great job, and um, good thing Connery was on board with it. Uh, we, of course, have to mention the 
locations that this movie was shot at being that it was done at the real life Alcatraz. I thought that was always a really cool uh, aspect of the movie that they kind of stayed true to the story. You didn't, didn't do a lot of shooting on sound stages. This was done at the. Oh, Disney real... wanted him to. Disney wanted him to. Michael Bay had to fight for that too. That's a good point. They did. The reason it was going to be so expensive and the reason that it, that was is because this is a national park, Alcatraz is, so they could not shut it down for filming. So they kind of had to shoot around the tours that were going on there. But it did stay true because that's not something that you could have replicated on a soundstage, I don't think. I don't know, man. Some of those uh, crews and departments that work on TV and movie are very talented. I have seen them recreate a a, a, a prison block, uh, a string of cells from an actual on-set location, and it looked exactly the same. So those guys are really talented. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's always better if you can shoot on the real location. It, it Not only does it help with the authenticity on film, but it, I would no doubt say it helps the actors and anyone working on it artistically. It really helps you kind of tap into the energy of the place. That's probably the best thing is that, uh, you know, when and you could probably speak from experience, but when you're coming off of a soundstage, you know, uh, that onto a, a quote-unquote fake set, it's it's different than if you really are on set at the real life location. So that's a that's a good point. Yeah, crew behind the camera, people, crew directors uh, would rather work in a soundstage as a controlled environment. Any actor or most actors, and it's each to their own, but prefer on location because it really does help you buy into what you're doing um, uh, if you're really there. Another location that they used was the Fairmont Hotel when uh, you know Mason, Sean Connery's character, gets his hair cut and kind of gets his suit and everything like that. Of course, there's the famous scene when he throws Womack over the edge. Being that they did it at the real Fairmont Hotel, uh, people saw that happening, called the police numerous times because there was someone dangling from the edge uh, <laughs> of the building. <laughs> Yeah, nowadays they would probably just green screen that and have the guy hanging from, uh, you know, some warehouse where they stage that stunt. But uh, this oh, was absolutely, back in absolutely a time. Would, yeah. yeah, this is back in a time where they still did a lot of those old school uh, big stunts in public like that. And um, uh, it, I think it pays off when you see the scene. You know, it, it feels real, and you're like, oh, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> Can't talk about the film without mentioning the score done by none other than the Zen master of modern day film scoring, Hans Zimmer. Dude, you you read my mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. This You and I have a close personal connection with the score of this film because we've listened to the score probably 10 times as many times as much as we've watched the film itself because it's that good. All the score is so good. It's the classic modern Hollywood score. It, it just represents that special era of 90s action films. And we've done some of them before. You know, The Speed, Terminator 2, uh, this film, just this certain 90s energy that existed in action movies, much like, you know, the 80s teen flicks, you know, that, that energy in those. Th- this film is, is very much um, a special breed, and they just don't make them like this anymore. Got to credit uh, Hans Zimmer, of course, but he didn't do it by himself. Nick Glennie Smith and Harry Gregson Williams also credited as principal composers of the of the soundtrack. So, uh, hats off to them as well. But it, it, if you've never listened to it, it is a it's a great score. It's got a kick-ass theme that you hear several times throughout the film. I just love that classic guitar sound that you know when the st- yeah. it's kind of showing you the stakes are high and it gives you an establishing shot of you know like FBI Mobile Command and it's like kind of panning <laughs> around and you're like oh man where's this going? I mean, 
Bay is great at uh, staging the scene and, and hyping moments, and Zimmer's score partners well with, uh, with a lot of those uh, scenes. That's a good word to use, partners well, because that's what's going to heighten it to another level. It's like, yeah, you can shoot it as good as possible, but when you have the music to take it to another level, that's what really makes it great. This film, uh, you know, uh, we had a lot of writers, borrows from a lot of movies. It's fair to say The Rock steals from a lot of great movies of the past. I'll give you a couple real quick. San Francisco Car Chase is from uh, Bullet. The Break into Alcatraz is from Escape from Alcatraz, the Clint Eastwood film. They borrow heavily from that 1979 film. Uh, hmm. The Sewers Underneath Alcatraz borrows heavily from The Third Man. The Machinery... Uh, like the boilers and stuff, very uh, similar uh, feel from the Alien movie. And we mentioned Tarantino is an unaccredited screenwriter. This film has several things that it borrows or steals from Tarantino movies of the past. Uh, the, the Plunging of the Needle from, of course, Pulp Fiction. And then Reservoir Dogs and True Romance with the, the standoff uh, type situation, particularly in the, in, in the shower room. And I think some of those are just classic to uh, movies in general. I mean, we, we've kind of talked about that before, how, you know, the greats imitate the, the other greats before it. So this is pretty common with the replay value heavy movies is that you see that they kind of cherry pick from things that were the writers or directors were influenced by themselves or just things that are pretty common and great to movies in general. I mean, one of the hottest TV shows right now, Stranger Things, that is that show's DNA is it's a, a mixture of all the things we've loved before. Yeah, it's full-blown 80s. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. Uh, now, moving on to the stars of the picture. This is an action movie with great movie stars, and that's, it, it does this movie a lot of favors and really elevates it with these skilled performances, particularly the three main stars of the film. Uh, we start with Nicolas Cage as Stanley Goodspeed. He was the first actor cast, and he was casted before he won the Oscar. It was released and came out after he won the Oscar, so <laughs> great timing for uh, Brockheimer. Wow, that's what you're going for with that. You know, that added, I'd say, some blockbuster clout to the names on that film, yeah. Well, it certainly added to Cage's star power. Uh, and Oscar always elevates or adds some more wattage to your star. And this character, really interesting about Stanley Goodspeed, not just any actor could play this, and we'll talk about that when we get to the recastings, but this is like uh, Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent, like, gee, golly whiz, you know, like uh, doesn't kind of, I mean, he does cuss when it's funny. Why don't you say we cut the chit-chat? A-hole! You know, he's just... No, here's the thing is that... I. I don't believe he cusses in that movie and I was reading about it and Nicolas Cage made that a choice for his character that he didn't want him to cuss. So you kind of have those kind of funny kitty versions of cuss words. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. For the most part, he doesn't cuss, but I was thinking maybe he had a moment or two where he slipped in shit or damn. But yeah, that's, that's a defining trait of the character is that he doesn't cuss, certainly not as frequently as the other characters around him and will typically substitute it with funny words uh you know instead of choosing to cuss i think the reason for that is because a character cussing in a movie is typically associated with them being a badass and he had to sell that you know he's a scientist he's a mm. biochemist that side of his character but it's really difficult to play both sides you know because he does have some bad badass moments in the film but at, at the core, he, yeah, he's a scientist. More, more, more brain than brawn. And, and it's yeah, for sure. And Nicolas Cage, uh, I think this is really the start of his career. Where he started doing more action films. And he had Con Air after this. 
He really kind of went down that, I want to be an action movie star. I've got my Oscar now, career path. Let's make some money. Yeah. 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 Another Oscar winner, of course, Sean Connery, who plays John Patrick Mason. And the Cage-Connery duo, that that chemistry really made this movie tick. It Just one of the parts of the film that, that works. And it does, yeah. Sean Connery won the Oscar about eight years earlier for Untouchables, where he partnered with uh, Kevin Costner. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't easy to get Sean Connery in this movie. Uh, they spent six weeks, uh, uh, Jerry Brockheimer, Don Simpson, trying to convince him to do it. And he spent, uh, Sean Connery did, going over the script, sp- spending a lot of time changing his character. The idea that his character was in prison, that was Sean Connery's idea. You know, he came up with a lot of different stuff. And, and, and you know, Jerry Brockheimer said, you know, when you hire Sean Connery, he doesn't just show up to set and, and, and say his lines. Like, he commits he comes with ideas. He wants to know the why, when, and where of every single line he's saying. Hmm. I did not know that. That's a pretty, pretty cool little factoid. Uh, you don't, I don't think I've heard that much with Sean Connery, but he, I think he's one of those is more kind of private about that, 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 that type of stuff. So Yeah. He uh, signed on after Cage was cast, but he had a couple of conditions, uh, one of which was that his coverage had to be filmed first. Now, those, hmm. have, those who haven't worked on a film set or a movie, a coverage is, is – and you could probably figure it out if you think about it, is a particular actor's uh, shots they need of him on screen saying lines. And most of the time, you'll an actor, you know, they'll shoot a master shot, and then they'll do a, an actor's close-up, and they'll do the actor, other actor's close-up. So basically, he's demanding that all his vital on-screen shots get done first because a lot of big-name actors won't stick around when their character's off-screen. They'll have someone else read the lines for them, which it doesn't do the other actor any favors. It makes it harder on them to not have that actor to play off of. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, you know, you've been in the game 30, 40 years and those days get pretty long. You know, some of those actors have earned that ride and, and they do exercise it. I've heard that term coverage. I didn't know what it means, but I imagine he just wanted to get off set as quick as possible, spend as little time, you know, uh, actually having to to go through the grind of being on a film set. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and he didn't venture far. He also demanded that production built him a cabin on the island so he didn't have to ferry <laughs> back and forth at the end of the day. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's so funny. And when you're a movie star, uh, it's good to be king. They get what they want, man. Do you want to give a quick shout-out to the actor that played Ernest Paxton, uh, William Forsyth, and while we talk about Nicolas Cage, he was actually in Raising Arizona with Nicolas Cage. This is the... Uh, second time they had teamed up together. Mm, I didn't know that. That's a cool little Easter egg. David Morse is Major Tom Baxter. This is like the classic character actor you've seen in 5,000 different TV shows and movies, kind of like Xander Berkeley. Like the guy's been in everything. Yeah. He's worked with everybody. You could probably do six degrees of separation with T- David Morse. He's not as big as Kevin Bacon, but the guy's worked with just as many people. Two Emmy nominations for previous work. Uh, also mentioned John Spencer as FBI Director Womack. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Womack. Womack won an Emmy for uh, best known for West Wing and was nominated four other times. So uh, uh, some prestigious television he was a, a part of, and he you know longtime actor. You know he'd sure. been in the game for forty years before his unfortunate passing. Uh, Michael Ben as Commander Anderson, third time he's played a Navy SEAL. Of course, he was in Aliens and, and most famously Terminator. He played John Connor's father. Right, 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 yeah. John C. McGinley as Marine Captain Hendricks from Scrubs, another 
great character actor. So weird to go back and watch him in that movie now since he's most closely associated with his Scrubs character. Yeah, man, he gets the job. He gets the job done, though. Uh, he sure does. Yeah. I think he's great in it. And some other notable names, uh, honorable mentions of the cast, Claire Forlani as uh, John Patrick Mason's daughter, Tony Tony Todd as one of the uh, bad Marines that's part of the crew, and Anthony Clark has a very memorable but small role as the hairdresser. So funny. And that that actor, very talented, went on to be the lead in his own NBC series, short-lived Boston Common. And uh, this was the feature film debut of Vanessa Marcel, who plays uh, the love interest and fiance of uh, Stanley Goodspeed. Like you said, a lot of great actors in the film, some playing minor parts, but I feel like I feel like we're missing somebody kind of important. The last star we haven't spoke about, the villain, or should I say anti-villain of the film, Ed Harris as General Francis X. Hummel, who is my MVP. And when you watch the film, it, it would be easy to go with Cage Connery, that duo, which when you narrow down to VP, it's between these three actors, Nicholas Cage, Sean Connery, and Ed Harris. But I believe Ed Harris as General Hummel added a sympathetic edge. Uh, they gave it a, the, the character a human element that you don't typically see in these type of films. And it just made for a very compelling uh, villain and, and, and added a complexity you generally don't see with the bad guy. Uh, so much so that there is a lot more room to explore with this character uh, you, because the foundation was so strong. You could really dig deep with this guy and uh, could have made it, you know, if he, there was a sequel or uh, to this film, uh, you could have brought him back or had him in there had he not been killed. Spoilers at the end of this movie. But uh, nails the character, captures the essence and aura of a decorated military commander. I mean, even in the opening credits when he's walking to his wife's grave in uniform with the flowers, I mean, he is selling everything about that character. Uh, And uh, just truly a great job by Ed Harris. You know, nominated for four Oscars, three Emmys. uh, Most recently, Westworld. He continues to do brilliant work to this day. And uh, can't say enough about the work he did in this film. One One of his finest performances. Absolutely. He definitely crushes it in this film, uh, the, the, the least I could say about it. Uh, I'd have to say that uh, probably the reason you didn't pick Cage or Connery is, is in some MVP votes, you know, you have players or people that steal votes from the other, and I feel like that's kind of the case here. You know, they kind of split that. You would almost have to do a co-MVP mm-hmm. if you chose yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. So Ed Harris is the clear uh, front runner, and he is what sets – this Michael Bay film apart from so many of the others is that his character has so much depth that you typically don't see in an action film. I mean, think about another great villain, uh, Dennis Hopper's character in Speed. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he has a motive. You can see it. But at the core, he's a, he's a, he's a bad guy. He's just he's kind of an asshole. Yeah, he's wanting to get paid. You know? But, uh, you know, uh, Ed Harris here has at least an honorable intention. It almost reminds me somewhat uh, although not as deranged as Thanos and most recently the Avengers film, where he has a purpose that is at least understandable. Uh, I'm not saying you agree with it, but you're like, ah, he's not just evil to be evil, like in a generic, crappy way. He's He's got a purpose and an intention, and there's a justification to why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, that, that's my point. Even though that Dennis Hopper is a great villain in Speed, you can't compare the two because... Ed Harris is as you can relate to, you can see where he's coming from, and those types of villains are the best ones. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you got to give credit to Don Simpson, the character 
of General Hummel mostly came from him. He saw an episode of 60 Minutes that was based on Colonel Hackworth's memoir where he bitched about the U.S. Army's lack of helping Vietnam veterans and not giving them anything when they come back or the families that lost them overseas not giving them enough uh, in their loss and, and helping their families. So a lot, they did take some truth uh, from uh, those memoirs and those stories in, in, in building uh, the character of General Francis Hummel. Three tours in Vietnam, Panama, Grenada, Desert Storm, three Purple Hearts, two Silver Stars, and the Congressional Medal of Jesus. Now we'll move on to the stats and accolades of The Rock, premiered at the Alcatraz Prison Yard on Alcatraz Island. Built a huge, like, um, outdoor theater for them to screen it. So pretty cool. Uh, released to the rest of the world June 7th, 1996, on a budget of $75 million in 2,426 theaters. Opening weekend, $25 million, which was number one in the U.S. It went on to gross domestically $134 million and its foreign gross, $200 million, rounding it out to a worldwide gross of $335 million. It closed in theaters December 5th, 1996, so just under six months of theater time. Quite a run. 182 days and 26 weeks in theaters. I don't, I don't care how successful a movie is. That is just something you do not, you will never see again. And we, we've mentioned that in previous episodes. Yeah. Films do not get that kind of run. You're lucky if you get six weeks in theaters. And if you were to take the dollars the film made back in 96, translate them to today... That's a $51.1 million opening weekend and then a domestic take of 273.2. So just clearly a blockbuster in any era you put it in. It was a hit, and it ranked number four in the highest-grossing films of the year, trailing Independence Day, Twister, and Mission Impossible. Uh, some scores of the film, uh, cinema score A, Rotten Tomatoes, 66% tomato meter, 85% audience score, and IMDb, 7.4 stars. Critics, 58 meta score, and generally positive reviews. Uh, Varieties, Todd McCarthy gave it a positive review, as did uh, Roger Ebert, 3.5 out of 4 stars, saying, quote, an action movie rises to the top of genre because of literate, witty screenplay, and skilled craftsmanship in direction and visual effects, unquote. And going back to the Rotten Tomatoes score, the sixty-six percent—that is the highest that Michael Bay has gotten on any of his films. If that tells you, it's anything. the highest-rated film from director Michael Bay to date. It's his most uh, revered and, and respected film, and it is his favorite movie of his own. He ha- he has said that on more than one occasion. Uh, did have one Oscar nomination for best sound. And another nine wins and eight nominations. Uh, Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, MTV Movie Awards, sure. Satellite Awards, some minor stuff. But uh, did have the one major nod. What a great year for action movies, 96. Man, Mission Impossible, Independence Day, this. Good time to be a moviegoer. Yeah, and, and speaking of which other movies of the year, Mission Impossible, Twister. Oh, I forgot that one. Nice. Yeah, Jerry Maguire. Damn. Uh, so career year for Cruise. That's the 96 Cruise year. Uh, Fargo. Critically beloved film, Scream, the teen cult classic hit, and the best picture winner of the year, English Patient. Oh, man, a lot of, a lot of great films. Like, yeah, I can't believe Scream was 96. For some reason, I thought it was later than that. but Like 99 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, right before 2000s. Right. Yeah. Uh, number one show of the year, ER, 
Emmy comedy series winner Frasier, the spinoff of Cheers, and Emmy drama series winner Law and Order, the original. Wow. So not one of the spinoffs, SUV or SUVD or whatever they call them now. <laughs> um, top songs of the year, number one song of 1996, Macarena by Los Del Rios. Oh, Christ. Yeah, and uh, the Grammy winner song of the year, Change the World by Eric Clapton. See, that, that was my jam. I love that song. That's it's a great a, song. That's a great song, yeah. Top events of 1996, Fox News debuted. Pokemon was introduced to the world. Major League Soccer debuted. Michael Jordan returns to dominance in the midst of his second three-peat with the Chicago Bulls in the NBA. And Bill Clinton is re-elected in his second term as president. Hmm. Now, see, man, a lot of stuff that happened in 96. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say the, the peaks were Jordan and Pokemon, but, you know, that's just me. All right, let's move into our favorite scenes and lines from the film. Uh, talking about an action movie, there's going to be a lot of really cool scenes. So uh, I'll uh, try to limit my, my honorable mentions, but there, there's a lot, a lot of... To choose from because it's just there's a it's a non-stop pace it's just something badass is always happening just one right after that keeps you engaged uh in that way so uh warren let's just kick it off with you what were some of your honorable mentions for your favorite scene a lot of replayable scenes i narrowed it down though and i mentioned one before but this film has so many establishing shots where it has that classic score playing and it kind of sets the stage of the, you know what's happening, what the stakes are. I did mention one specifically that comes to mind when Goodspeed's talking to Walmack and he's like, this isn't a training exercise? And he's like, no, Dr. Goodspeed, it's not a training exercise. And the camera just cuts to you know the Bay of San Francisco, gives you the sky shot of Alcatraz, that guitar, classic Zimmer, Hollywood scores playing, and then it pops up on the bottom of the screen, FBI Mobile Command. It's just, I love how Bay does that. He does that so great and, and just getting you excited for what's about to happen. So that's my one of my honorable mentions. The establishing shots are your honorable mentions? Well, just that one in particular. Oh, yeah, okay. But I, I mean, but I, I think he does it more than once, but that one in particular I really love. It would have been a good choice regardless because there are, now that you mention it, I never really kind of picked up on that watching it, but there are some some great use of the establishing shots with the score so i love that that's a good Bay's a master of those and he has them in bad boys 2 where uh, as well where he shows like the little sign of miami like where it's hollywood but they don't really have a sign like that but he built it for the movie and shoots under it with the, <laughs> with the plane going over it's just really yeah. cool but Bay's Bay's a master another honorable mention is good speed diffusing the d- bomb in the doll uh, that's a good one yeah the reason that scene exists narratively speaking, is to establish to the audience so we know Goodspeed is great at his job, and it we know why when he's told he needs to go to Alcatraz, we're like, well, yeah, he's got to go. He's the best at doing this. We've seen him in action. That's all my honorable mentions. What are some of yours? Well, I did try to limit it again. Action movie, just scene after scene after scene is very, very cool. I like, I like a lot of the ones that you mentioned. Uh, and I didn't want to steal the thunder of what could potentially be your runner up or favorite scene. So I'll just mention one that I'm pretty sure is not either one of those. And that is at the very end of the film, whenever uh, they steal the microfilm out of the church (laughs) and you kind of, and the movie just ends with, he's like, Hey babe, you you, want to know who killed JFK, but it's kind of them getting away from the church and it validates um, the secrets that Mason took and how he's kind of handed them off uh, to good speed. I, I just thought that was just a really cool way to end the film. 
Well, it, it's an an interesting uh, wrinkle to add in because it adds a level of intrigue. We're like, oh, the JFK assassination. They worked that in. But it also adds, it validates Connery's character, like you said. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's not full of shit. What he says is, you know, he, he, he didn't saw a lot of cool stuff, and he knows uh, a lot of the government secrets, as Walmack said. Uh, moving into our runner-ups, uh, I'm pretty sure this will be your favorite or, or, or match, you, uh, match me for your runner-up. But I had to pick the car chase in San Francisco. That is also my runner-up. Nice. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Mason breaks free, and the car chase ensues. And this car chase is just awesome. I mean, it's you can tell it's no CGI. They're really knocking things over. They're wrecking cars. And some of the funniest moments uh, are during the chase. He's like, I'm only borrowing your Humvee. Uh, but more with Nicolas Cage when he's got the Ferrari and he's like, and then he wrecks the Ferrari and that guy's like, whoa, you just fucked up your Ferrari. (laughs) And then Nicolas Cage is like, it's not mine. And then he just grabs the bike and takes off. Uh, A lot of great moments in that scene, but uh, it culminates with him, you know, uh, with Connery visiting his daughter and, and, and Nicolas Cage doing him a favor by not arresting her, uh, him in front of her. But uh, awesome scene, and uh, can certainly see why you picked it for the runner-up. I did. Yeah, and a couple of things that you missed in there is, uh, you know, the funny moments, kind of the one-liners in the middle of it to kind of keep you laughing. But there's one where, like, Connery answers the car phone in there. Like, who would ever do that during a high-speed chase? But then it kind of explains it because he uses it to call information to, to find his daughter, so it kind of makes sense. But I always also love the guy running the trolley at the end. Damn! This sucks! Where's that son of a bitch at? I'm gonna hunt him down! That motherfucker ain't safe anywhere! He's just kind of the comedic relief when it, his trolley gets messed up, and, and I, I kind of like that part too. So. It's it, But it's such a, a movie thing to put him that trolley guy in there upset because he's acting like it's his own trolley and it belongs to the city of san francisco he's not out any money so i i think it's just put in there more for comic effect than anything oh absolutely yeah all right so we matched up on our runner-ups uh what was your favorite scene my favorite scene green light to seal incursion when they break into alcatraz yes oh my god it's so great um uh real quick that was also my favorite scene. Wow, matched up again. Okay. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. We'll talk about the influence of the film later, but you have to think there's a lot of unspoken influences this scene has had, not only in video games, but other action movies from the way the seals swim underwater with the little uh, devices they have, and they show the little digital screen. I, mean, I thought it, those it, were so cool when I was so a kid. awesome. Oh it's gosh. like, oh my god! And you, when you're watching it, you're like, oh, this is what the seals do. This is what they really look like when they have their gear. And you know, it one of the best shots of the movie, and Bay is such a genius at it, is when the seal pops up out of the water with his gun pointed, uh, in just in perfect kill stance. It, it's one of the quintessential Navy SEAL scenes in movies. Uh, that really moment. Is. It's so great. Uh, and, of course, this scene culminates uh, with the climax, the standoff in the shower room, uh, where there's a great exchange, very well acted, between Ed Harris and Michael Ben before uh, all the SEALs are killed in the massacre. I'm not going to ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here. 
man following the general. You're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on and pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mutiny. You call it what you want. You're down there. We're up here. You walk into the wrong goddamn room, Commander. Goddamn it, Commander! One last time, you tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot give that order. I am not going to repeat that order. I will not give that order. What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast. And it also establishes why they needed to bring Mason with them. Uh, not only because he kind of does the roll under through the fire furnace thing or whatever. I mean, clearly he had it timed and he's the only person that could have done that. And boilers are working 60 years after since Alcatraz has been functioning anyway. Sure, yeah, and the, yeah, nothing's changed on those. But and he opens the door, you get a great line, you know. Welcome to the rock. Then right after that, they're kind of looking at what pipe to go into to get to the sewer line, and he's like, "Oh, don't go through that one. Go through this one." So it's it kind of shows that why they needed to bring him, and it justifies it as opposed to them just like, "Oh, well, we could have read this off of blueprints." It's like you you needed someone there with that experience. So I did like how they provided the logic of why he was there. Yeah, and Commander Anderson knows that from experience. He's like, he could tell right away, hey, we're going to need him in here. If, if he even says that to the FBI director, he's like, hey, if my men need him for my mission, he goes. You yeah. know, it's like, and so I think Commander Anderson understood that pretty early. Uh, even, man, the standoff at the end, like, great job by Zimmer scoring that with the heroic music. Uh, such a fitting song for that scene. Again, Zimmer... It, one of my favorite scores of his is this film right there with the Dark Knight trilogy. Because you get the highs of each emotion. You know, you can have like the beginning when Hummel's going to visit his wife's grave and then the scene in the bathroom. It's like you get the kind of the emotion behind the tragedy of and the sadness behind those scenes. But then you also have the really cool, upbeat, the tension building action theme. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, so like when they when they steal the VS gas from that compound, that's that build up yes. music. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was actually, I uh, neglected to mention that because I thought that that might have been one of your runner-ups or favorite, but that opening scene when they do steal the VX gas because um, it also, another establishing thing, that they tranquilize people. You see that Hummel has motives, but he doesn't kill anybody. You know, he's there to, to just to do a job. He, he shows throughout the film, even during the shower scene, right when the, he you can tell he had no intention of killing one seal. Like right when they start opening fire because that brick accidentally falls down and people panic and start shooting. You hear him right away. He's like, cease fire, cease fire. Like Ed Harris, man, the, he foreshadows his hidden goodness and his uh, heart of gold uh, even early on in the film. Yeah. All right, so favorite lines of the film. Uh, a lot of cool one-liners. Uh, let's kick it off with your honorable mentions, Warren. Uh, there's a handful here. I uh, have to mention when Sean Connery says, But of course you are. This is the same line he said as 007 in Diamonds Are Forever. Glad you discovered that little Easter egg there. Yes, I was going to say that. That, uh, that, that. that is indeed correct. A little, little shout-out to that. And I love how the film, they casted him, Sean Connery is John pa- Patrick Mason, but they play on the fact that he played Bond before, and that's somewhat how you buy into him being this character. He's like, I was trained by the breast, British intelligence. You know, he, he kind of mm-hmm. hints at the character he played before, so it's very easy, even though Connery's, what, 60 or 70 in this movie, you have no problem believing he's doing what he's doing because it's fucking James Bond. 
Exactly. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, any other honorable mentions? Honorable mentioned, uh, and a couple other by Connery here, is... The Rock has become a tourist attraction. I also had that as an, as an honorable mention. Yeah, that's a good one. And then you said one with our favorite scene, Welcome to the Rock. That's a great line. Uh, I'm going to take pleasure in gutting you, boy. <laughs> that's a good one. I forgot about that. That's nice. That's good. And Cage says it over and over again when he's like, you know, how did you figure out how to open your cell? He's sitting there kind of making fun of what uh, Tony Todd's character said to him in the preceding scene. Uh, and uh, another honorable mention is Walmack. When he gets the phone call and he's like, seems like Alcatraz is reopened. Like, that is so absurdly tone deaf for the character to say it that way. <laughs> like, it's such a stupid thing to say. Yeah, there are some cheesy one-liners, but they they, 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 they work. I can't explain it. They're just they're done well by the actors. Yeah, and I, this is an honorable mention I had, too, speaking of Walmack, because I've heard you say it so many times. He's lethal. He's <laughs> a trained killer. <laughs> That's absolutely the delivery of the actor on that one, man. He just, the way he says, he's lethal. <laughs> just love that. Yeah, love, love John Spencer and, uh, <laughs> with that line. And my last honorable mention is Nick Cage going, What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? And he's like, you know, my jaw hurts like hell. And he's like, good. You actually mentioned my uh, only uh, honorable mention. The, uh, the Rock has become a tourist attraction, uh, that one. Uh, so my runner-up, and I know you're going to have this one ranked high, is Walmart. Why am I not surprised, you piece of shit? That is my runner-up as well. Again? What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Man, that is three matchups on uh, on one of our top choices. So that that's that's awesome. Clearly, a great delivery by Sean Connery. So uh, he has so many good lines in the film. But uh, I'll pass it off to you as our as the winner. I'm pretty sure we might be four for four here on the top slots. We we absolutely are because you have to pick this as your favorite line. Yeah, the winner. Your best losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. That's got to be the winner. I mean, that's the, the winner. The, the, best line. The most quotable. Yeah, best line. Absolutely. Again? What? Did we just become best friends? Not just a friend. A partner. And as we've talked about before, it's very quotable because it's one of those lines you'll say in life over and over again as well. Well, because it's cliche because you ask somebody if they can do something or are they going to do it or, you know, to do it. And they're like, oh, I'll try my best. And you're just kind of like, your best. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. You just That's go usually what it. triggers it is when someone talks about their best or your best. Love that line. All right. Let's recast the film with today's stars. And there's quite a few to go through here. Um, you know, very much an ensemble cast, although it doesn't seem like it's that way at first because you have the big three, but there are a lot of great key players that help uh, deliver a lot of great lines in the movie. So um, let's actually kick it off kind of down on the call sheet. And she's a big character, but just not one that's real integral to the plot. Let's start off with uh, Goodspeed's fiance, Carla. Who did you have? Thought about Gail Gadot, but I went with Anna de Armas from Blade Runner oh. 2049. Yes, I almost picked her. I, 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 you know, one of my favorite young actresses. She's very talented. Um, you know, I think she would do very very well in this part um she was my second choice my first was naomi scott oh that's pretty good who's jasmine in the new yeah. aladdin she's going to be yeah. in the new charlie's angels and it so, was uh, this was the uh feature film de- 
debut for the actors that did play this role, Vanessa Marcel. So I could see you casting someone uh, younger like Naomi Scott because I believe Aladdin was her feature film debut or one of her first movies. It was, yes. Yeah. I believe you believe you're correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Ernest Paxton of the uh, of the FBI. Uh, who did you have? For FBI special agent in charge, Ernest Paxson, I went with Titus Welliver from Bosch and Deadwood. Mm, I, um, oh, I knew you would do that. Oh, that's a good choice. I thought about casting him, but I ended up going with a, more of a character actor. Uh, I went with Clancy Brown. Mm, okay. Yeah, you know, I think both would be a good choice. They could do that. They kind of have, there has to be um, some kind of intensity to that, that role. Uh, and, and an air of superiority, so that I I, I like that Titus Waller. But I think you, I'm going to give you the edge on that one. He's a, he's a good choice. And he's great as Bosch, and you can almost see that being a variation of that character. Uh, he's very uh, Titus Waller's uh, awesome at embodying uh, that character, and uh, it's very much the same kind of gritty, broody, uh, you know, uh, uh, high level police officer detective. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. All right, um, Major Tom Baxter, uh, Hummel's second in command. Um, I'll kick things off with this one. Um, I had trouble picking him out, but as soon as I came across the name, I'm like, that's it. And I chose Gary Sinise. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, but, uh, see, you're saying pretty good, but all I'm pretty, hearing is, pretty, that sucks. <laughs> pretty good. I didn't think of him at all. Uh, you just went a different angle with it. I went with Stephen Lang, the villain from Avatar. Oh, okay. Yeah, you got I mean, obviously military background. Uh, Plays that know. role really well. I don't sure. He, you'd almost consider him for Hummel, but Ed Harris. That he that's one of the hardest to recast because Harris brought so much gravitas to playing Hummel that that I don't think I think Lang's a really good number two here. All right, so I, I like that. Now the the next four the bit the you know, the main actors I would say of the film. Um, before we move into those, did you have any other actors that you recast? Uh, yeah, I did a kind of a uh, auxiliary casting here. I know you didn't go with this, but I, I casted uh, Commander Charles Anderson, played by Michael Ben here, the uh, Navy SEAL commander um, uh, out of our, one of our favorite scenes. Casted Mark Wahlberg in the role. Okay, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I think that the part is a little too minor for Mark Wahlberg, and I know this is just for fun, a recasting exercise, but... He's, he's just in the film. Uh, it'd kind of be like Steven Seagal in Executive Decision. You know, you talk him into popping in for one scene just to get the paycheck. Well, here's the thing is that you almost get the shock value because you're like, oh, Mark Wahlberg is playing this part. He's a big actor. They're not going to kill him off. And then he dies an hour into the movie. and you're, So you kind of catch the audience off guard with that. So I, I, I can see that. I like that. Like another big movie that came out this year, Scream, when they killed Drew Barrymore in the first scene. Same kind of strategy there from a casting standpoint. An excellent point. I didn't think of that. All right, so let's move into the big four. I'm really proud of the next four choices that I made. Uh, we'll, we'll kick off with you for FBI Director Womack. FBI Director James Womack. I went with Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Oh, man. He's... He's a great actor. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like, dude, you watch him on Billions. He's great for this. Maybe I need to see him in Billions, but like, you have to think is, eh, I don't know. I I I, I look at WNBC. <laughs> WNBC. I've seen him in too many of those roles to kind of see him as an as a reputable sleazy FBI director. Um, so I went in a little bit different direction, quite a bit different direction actually. I went with uh, Ben Mendelsohn. Wow, he's one of our 
kind of our go-to villains. We tend to cast quite a bit. I've, I've casted him a couple. You times. have. This is the first time that I've casted. Well, him. he's Hollywood. He's played like villains in the last four movies he's done. If he's not careful, he's going to typecast. And himself. he's awesome. Yeah, he no, he's great. My favorite performance of his is killing them softly but when he plays a heroin addict he's so great in that movie he's a junkie and he's amazing at playing it general hummel who did you have went with russell crowe russell crowe okay commands respect yeah. and in a similar way they did with connery i feel like his background as gladiator kind of helps you buy into him being that decorated warrior that badass i like that yeah i mean i have trouble seeing him as a general like a four-star general. That's the only thing. He's kind of too, I think, too rough around the edges to make it that high of a rank. Uh, but I, I do like that. Um, I kind of floated with the idea of maybe a Kevin Costner, thought of him for this role. Uh, but I ended up going with Michael Keaton. Oh, wow. That's good. Fucking love Keaton. Fucking love Keaton, man. Keaton's awesome. Keaton's, I, I watch Clear History, and he plays like an idiot villain. That, <laughs> and he's dude, he's good in everything. Uh, we were just talking about Toy Story earlier, how he stole the show in three. He's love Keaton. He's great. Yeah. So I could yeah. you can't go wrong with that. So um, all right. So let's move into the the top two uh, on the the call sheet here. Uh, I'm hoping we have a matchup with one of these. Um, I'll kick it off with the John Patrick Mason, uh, and uh, I actually. Didn't really have any trouble with this one as soon as I thought about it. You have to go with a venerated actor, little later in the years, but still a badass. Liam Neeson. Man, I also almost casted Liam Neeson. Uh, he was my number two. I actually have him wrote down, but I just casted him recently. Yeah, so I had true. to withdraw from casting Neeson because he's so he is perfect for this. I ended up going and again playing from the casting strategy of what an actor's done before to help set the uh, the the backstory kind of subconsciously in the audience's minds. Pierce Brosnan, okay. another 007 alumni. No 007 alumni. Man, how how about that? That's good. Yeah, I, I love that little tie into it. I really, really ne- like Neeson, that. So. Neeson is, uh, I think, more suited for it, but I can't cast him in every episode, sure. so I have to with no. yeah, I got to skip over hey, there. Pierce Brosnan's a great choice, again, because of the 007 uh, tie-in. So that, you're, you're gonna e- Even as old as he is now, Mamma Mia singing songs, if you see him in The Rock, you're going to believe Pierce Brosnan just because of his background is Bond. You, sure. You yeah. are. You don't have any t- hard time believing a 60-year-old kicking th- guys half his age's ass. Yeah. All right, and finally, Stanley Goodspeed, Dr. Stanley Goodspeed. Um, difficult to cast this one because, again, you have to have the dichotomy of, all right, venerated, accomplished scientist who's best in his field and we get called for this type of job, but at the same time, someone who can do the car chase and kind of have a few you know, tough moments uh, when they're on the island. So you have to have both sides of it. Very tough. So uh, who did you have? Well, if this was like 10 years ago, I would cast Keanu Reeves. Yeah, uh, I thought, yeah, I thought of him, not I only, did. Not, yeah, he's, it's just not, he's a little too old for this yeah. role now. Uh, but um, being the techie action badass, like a really smart techie guy, capable of badassery, but also what's, makes Reeves and Cage cut from the same cloth is they both have these bizarre uh, mannerisms and ways they express themselves or, or, or unique vocalizations or noises they make in movies or their way they talk that puts them kind of in the same, uh, like I said, cut from the same cloth in the way they behave. So I feel like some of those same little uh, nuances that Cage has, you know, like when he's 
having sex with uh, his fiance when he gets the call from the FBI. He's saying all that gibberish, like just being a little cool, peach sorbet persuasion. Those weird cagerisms. <laughs> yeah. Reeves has those too. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so Reeves really would be perfect for this. But I ended up going with Eddie Redmayne, but he, he no English accent. He would have to do straight American. Hmm. Okay. That's a very good choice. I, I wish I would have thought of that. Um, yeah. Also he, an Oscar winner as Cage was coming into the movie. Well, yeah, Cage got it, you know, kind of in the middle as we discussed, but um, I can see the scientist part of it, but some of the more badass aspects, I mean, I'm just, I'd have trouble seeing Eddie Redmayne in that, but he, he could do it. Um, I ended up going with Jake Gyllenhaal. He's too badass, dude. He's got, dude, he played a boxer in Southpaw. I, you don't have, dude, Jake Gyllenhaal does not need uh, 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 Sean Connery's character, Patrick May. He doesn't need Mason to help him. Yeah, but he could play the the nerdy part. He could. He doesn't have to, like, you know, beef up like a boxer. He, I, I'm looking at somebody who could play both sides of it, and I think he could. Maybe if he, like, was Nightcrawler Gyllenhaal, where he, you know, exactly. he's, like, 120. 40 pounds soaking wet, but it's his persona is a badass though, as an actor. No, it's not. I think he has both sides of it. Cause he's like, you mentioned, he recently wasn't that long ago that he did. He's got, crawling. yeah, he's got range, but typically when you put him in an action environment, he tends to lean one way and that's badass. Uh, it's mm. movies that are non-action films that he tends to be a non-badass character. Yeah. But uh, I digress. I agree to disagree. Well, I was going to say, I neglected to mention this in the in the casting section, but you know who was almost cast as Stanley Goodspeed and turned down the role because he didn't like the script? Arnold Schwarzenegger. How about that? Huh. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention that earlier, but uh, that, that kind of caught me off guard. would have been a completely different movie. but Well, maybe it might have given Arnold's career some new life because uh, 1998's End of Days was the end of his peak movie stardom. Real quick, fun fan theory uh, that kind of ties into The Rock, and uh, you actually mentioned it earlier, so you can probably can see where I'm going with it. Because Sean Connery was in it as a British secret agent, of course there's going to be the fan theory tie-in that John Patrick Mason is a pseudonym that he adopted, uh, but is actually the real James Bond. <laughs> but you can't disprove it. You know, the, he, because the movie leans into that. It leans into it, exactly. There's enough callbacks to it. You're like, okay, hey, you can buy into it. It's the same characters. There's literally a handful of references. Like, they intentionally, like, you could tell the creative team, the writers, they made that decision to lean into it. So, yeah, the fan theory serves that. Uh, the, the writing serves that fan theory. And he's a badass in the way that, in a, yeah. at an impossible level, the way that James Bond was. And if Bond really did get caught at the Canadian border and he couldn't get out himself, the British government would absolutely disavow him, you know, and he would have to have a, you know, fake name that he adopted instead. So that's kind of what the, the angle of it is. But then you mentioned the line that he says that the character James Bond said in Diamonds Are Forever, uh, but of course you are, you know. So uh, yeah. a fun fan theory there. I figured you'd like that. Uh, now, we'll f- close out the episode discussing the legacy and influence of The Rock. And as we mentioned before, it's most known as just a great 90s action flick. Uh, it represents an era of Hollywood action movies they just don't make anymore, where they do real stunts with stunt actors, they build miniatures, they have real explosions, you know, that old school Hollywood filmmaking. And, and this film 
it means so much to a specific generation. And I think it's different from some other great movies we've done where it's not going to have an impact on multiple generations. The Rock's biggest impact is going to be on the generation that grew up watching the movie. Yeah, it's it's impact. It's legacy. Is, it's, I would say, not as... Uh, <laughs> it's not as lofty as uh, some of the other movies that we've done. I mean, to me... It has a hot replay value as a great action film. That's its lasting uh, legacy and influence is that it's of that era of 90s action films. Mm-hmm. It, to me, is at the pinnacle of those and one that is has some of those cheesy fun moments, but it's not enough to where you can't enjoy a good story to it and good characters. It represents a genre, but which makes a difference from another film we did, like The Matrix. The Matrix had something new. It had something new to say. It had a new wrinkle, a new a, a, a new spin on a genre we hadn't seen. This film isn't anything new. We've seen it before. It just executes it at a very high level. I will say that there is one l- little piece of legacy that it has that I... I don't know if it's proud of. You can kind of take it for what it is. But this movie did directly contribute to reports of Iraq having weapons of mass destruction back in 2002. Well, that was the, the it was a controversy. The uh, an uh, SIS British agent based his reports on the uh, scenes from the movies uh, specifically uh, the, that related to the, the VX nerve gas, uh, its description and, and uh all the all the incorrect false statements were, were, were derived from the film that the agent borrowed from the movie. Yeah, I mean, he borrowed from it, but the MI6 chief, uh, whose name uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, which I kind of thought was funny, Dearlove, Goodspeed, it's kind of the same type of name as far as two common words, but uh, the, that MI6 chief actually bought into it, and that information made it up to the prime minister, uh, Tony Blair at the time. So even though these were clearly false claims that anyone who did the smallest amount of research on nerve agents could have debunked. This is something that permeated as bad intelligence. It did have a real impact, uh, at least for a short time on global on real world events. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and that's not something any of the filmmakers ever intended. And it's certainly not something you ever want to see. Uh, you want to see movies inspire people to do good. You certainly don't want it to be used to mislead or misrepresent things that are happening. Uh, so uh, an unfortunate development that, that occurred there. Uh, another interesting impact I think the film had, similar to another film we did, The Hangover, with people wanting to visit Vegas and Caesar's Palace. This spiked interest and visits to Alcatraz Island. Uh, they skyrocketed after the film came out. Everyone wanted to go there and you know see uh, the prison and, and where they shot the movie. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, uh, if if I do have the chance to go on a tour of Alcatraz, that will be the first thing I think of, even before I set foot on the island. Is holy shit, that's where the rock took place. Blah. Yeah, you know? yeah, I saw it from a distance when I was in San Francisco because you can see it from the city off the water, and it's the first thing. It's pretty cool. You you can't look at it and not think of the movie. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. In 2014, Time Out polled top critics, actors, directors, and stunt actors in the film industry to list their top action films. The Rock ranked number 74. Oh, okay. Wow, that's that's high praise. That's high praise. It's considered, again, a great action film for its time. It was selected as part of the Criterion Collection, which they cherry-picked films they felt were significant to culture to be released in that special uh, DVD uh, series uh, or set that they had. I'm sure you remember seeing those. The yeah, oh, yeah, of course, cases. yeah. I mean, it 
it's kind of surprising that they've never done a sequel. Like I feel like if the movie were to come out now, it would be impossible to avoid a sequel. It would I it it would they be abandoned the sequel. Oh, there's actually two different uh, narratives they had cooked up for a potential sequel that have been kind of thrown around Hollywood. The first being Good Speeds on the Run with the microfilm from the government, and he's now married, and he ends up needing Mason's help. So he kind of brings Mason back into it. It brings the duo back together, which if you're going to do a sequel, you would have to have that duo reunited. Sure, yeah. Because that's what made the first movie go, uh, along with Hummel, who, you know, spoilers, is dead now. So you'd have to center on those two characters. It's true, uh, The yeah. second narrative idea they had was Michael Bay had this idea and he said this in an interview in June 2017 uh, Bay had the idea of the US government pursuing Mason on the run but it was never developed past that concept yeah I mean you again you have to have a compelling villain and you can't just be a chase because who's the bad guy you know I mean uh, I mean a good writing you can get around that you maybe know, get so- Tommy Lee Jones from the fugitive I want you to search every <laughs> hen house bond house talk house your fugitive's name. It's Richard Kimball or John Patrick Mason. Go get him. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah, I would say that I wouldn't put it past uh, Hollywood to put out a sequel at some point, but it's just it would take a good script to do so. Well, you'd have to reboot it now because you're never going to get Connery. Connery's been retired for 10 years. He's, he's oh, yeah, no, it'd clearly movie. be a reboot and shit. The Rock would probably play Stanley Goodspeed for all the fuck we know. But uh, and Speaking of which, isn't it crazy? I tried to research this movie, and there's never going to be another movie I do that shares the same nickname of a major <laughs> movie star where I have to go through Rock to get to stuff yeah, about the movie. Try to Google The Rock. Yeah, it's like The Rock Movie. No, no, not rock movies. Come on. Name another situation where a movie and a movie star sh- share the same name like that. It's, it doesn't exist. And Roger Ebert summed it up best when he said, quote, The Rock is a first-rate slam-bang action thriller with a lot of style and no little humor. It's made out of pieces of other movies, yes, and not much in it is really new, but each element has been lovingly polished to a gloss, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production.